Texas Instrument is better place than any other common I can think of to take advantage of that trend. So that's the first thing. Hello everyone and welcome to the Investing City podcast where the goal is to get better at investing, business, and life. Thank you so much for taking the time to join us. It really means a lot. Without further ado, enjoy this episode. On this episode, we get to speak with Trevor Muchedzi. So Trevor is the founder and CIO of One Transaction Capital, and he's had an extensive background in finance. In this one, we talk specific names basically the entire episode. So if you're a stock picker and you like this kind of stuff, this is the episode for you. We talk entirely about Trevor's portfolio and then how he thinks about each company. Enjoy this one. The following is presented for informational purposes only and is not investment advice. This information must not be relied upon in making any investment decision. Investing City cannot be held responsible for any type of loss incurred by applying any of the information presented. Furthermore, securities discussed in this podcast may be held by Investing City and members thereof. Thank you. Okay, on this episode of the Investing City podcast, we're pleased to have Trevor Muchedzi. So he is a portfolio manager at One Transaction Capital. And thanks for being here, Trevor. Thanks, Ryan. Thanks for having me. And uh, thanks for the opportunity to be able to talk to you through uh, my investment strategy. Great. So why don't we start there? When did you first get interested in investing? <laughs> well, um, probably just to give you some background, I was... Um, I was born in Zimbabwe and um, I, I had an interest in investing probably from the time I was in college. Uh, but because of macroeconomic fundamentals and, all, and other issues, I didn't really have exposure to the U.S. market um, in the beginning, early days. So I started uh, investing in a very small uh, local market with only about 50 or 50 or 60 companies. But at least it gave me a foot just to understand, you know, how, how markets work and what are the things, um, you know, to look out for. And obviously also pay my school fees in terms of making the mistakes that you all do early on in, in the process. And then uh, I moved to Johannesburg, South Africa. That's where I've been based for the last 12, 13 years. And from there, I... Um, Really, initially, obviously, was looking at the South African, South African market. But what I then realized was that, you know, around 2010, 2011, right, there started to be like a divergence in the, in the performance of the South African stock market uh, versus the U.S. And really, when I began to look at it, I then realized that the South African market was pretty much driven by the we can call it what, the third industrial revolution. So, you know, mining companies, manufacturing uh, companies that had been in existence for the last hundred years. But then going forward, you could see that in the U.S. there was a movement towards, you know, investing a lot of capital into intangible assets. And the breed of companies that were coming from there, you could see they would, they would expand at a rate which is way much faster than what you'd expect, you know, with uh, manufacturing or mining-based companies. So that really kicked my interest into looking into the U.S. market. And after 
probably after a year, I was, I was a little bit hesitant, but after a year, what I did, I did something quite drastic in that I sold every single thing that I had in South Africa and I moved the entire portfolio to the US. So I've been there for probably close to four to five years now. I've been investing almost 100% of my exposure on the US market. Wow. So what was the data point or kind of the research you were doing to actually make that big drastic move to take all of your money out of the South African market and put it into the US market? So there were were a couple of things, but I think the the turning point, right, is that I saw an article on Bloomberg um, some time back. And what the article really showed was that if you look at emerging markets over the long, over the long term, the gains that you make on your stock portfolio tend to be eroded by the, the, the current depreciation, right? So then you can find that after a, 10 years, or after a 10-year horizon, in dollar terms, your portfolio might be worth exactly what it was 10 years ago. Because currency also is one issue that you know, tend to eat away returns for, you know, within emerging markets. So that was like probably the first really article that got me thinking. And I began to look at the South African market. And if you look at the rand versus the dollar exchange rate, I mean, it moved from six, around six, six rand fifty to the dollar. And by that time, it was getting to, you know, like a or 12 to 13 rand to the dollar. So you could see the, dollar, the rand it depreciated over 50% in that period, right? And... You know, if you just do some big of the envelope calculation, I saw that my portfolio in dollar terms essentially had gone nowhere. You know, I was essentially in the same spot. Uh, so that was really like the kicker. And then the second uh, second thing was then the article I read that talk that spoke about um, you know, um, it was a, I think it was an article in Financial Times that it was a that spoke about uh, the rapid investment into intangible assets. Uh, you know, in the U.S. mainly in other first world countries. And then lastly, it was this book, uh, Capital, Capitalism Without Capital. That was also like the one that really, really gave me the conviction to do something as drastic as that. Gotcha. So I thought it would be an interesting way to kind of explore your investment strategy by just talking about some specific examples. So if you go to your Twitter page, the pinned tweet, so the one at the very top, is your current portfolio as of the end of June. So we have the companies, and then let's just go through them, and then I'll ask kind of questions back and forth. Does that sound good? Yep. Great. So let's start with the payments companies. I notice you have four payments companies. So let's just talk about Square to start off. What made you invest in it? And then kind of talk about this basket approach with the four payments companies that you have. Sure. I, I'm, really, I'm really addicted to the payment space. Um, that's why probably my portfolio is heavily t- tilted towards payments. But the way I think about investing is that I first think about themes, right? So I ask myself which particular indus- industries or which particular sectors really have got very large, um, or, the, or that are really evolving, and they've got really, very, very large um, like, like investment runways. So, I mean, if you look at payments, I, I think over the last 1,000 or 2,000 years, you know, cash has really, had really dominated the payment space. 
But you could see over the last couple of years that there's this movement or shift towards, you know, um, like non-paper non cash payments, uh, like methods, right? Both for the retail customers and also for the business-to-business, -business, uh, for the business-to-business -business transactions. So I really start looking at industry themes and then ask myself, okay, which industries do I see evolving, evolving, evolving so much over the next couple of 10, 20, 30 years? So payments was one. And then within the payment space, I then really start thinking about which companies are best positioned within their specific uh, niches to really take advantage of this, of this evolution. So there are some easy companies that you can think of, like MasterCard. You know that they almost operate like a tow gate. It's almost like a tow, tow road operator that own you know, the rails through which the payments are made. And it's such a company where you, you really can see that as long as, even without the company doing anything, but this systemic shift from cash payments to non paper-based payments, you can see that this tend to benefit for a very, very long time. So one of the things that I really look, of, what I really look out for besides our growth in terms of revenue, I also look at how long can a company grow. So you can have a company like MasterCard that can grow at 12 or 14%, but if it can grow at that rate for like 30, 40 years, it creates a lot of value for investors. So that's kind of like how I think about some of these companies. And then in terms of Square, it was really because they were carving out a very niche, it's not a niche, they were carving, up, carving out a very good, uh, specific uh, part of the market that, that really resonates, resonates with me. Because like, for example, I know that in the US, we have got more than 30 million companies that, that can be categorized as small businesses, right? So if we've got this huge market and that huge market was really being underserved by the bank. And for Square to go, for Square playing in that space, I really thought that they've got a huge opportunity that is in front of them. And some of these companies, they are so small that if, if you give them a solution where they can actually you know, onboard themselves and set up their banking operations without having to go to a branch, these are the companies that you can easily tap into. And the good thing about it is that when they grow, they're likely to grow with you and then you can on-sell or cross-sell other services to them. So that's how I think about Square. Obviously, PayPal plays a lot on the, in the online space. And, um, and then PaySeguro, I also, it's, a, it's another payment play, but then this one is based out of Latin America. Um, there's a lot of resemblance between like Brazil and South Africa in that there's a very huge informal market you know, very, very small businesses or very, very small sole trader type of businesses. So this is, this is almost like an opportunity again for companies like PegSeguro that, that they can take advantage of, you know, in, in the long term. And I really think that the investment opportunity for them is quite huge. So great. Just to kind of drill in on some of the specifics. So for example, why did you pick MasterCard versus say Visa? <laughs> um, that's a trick. That's a really tricky question. But um, just, to, uh, just to be honest with you, 
the capital that I had was enough to buy one company. So I just had to pick uh, like, like, like one of the two companies. Yeah, but, fair enough. Yeah, but, but I mean, on the balance of things, if I have got enough capital, I can buy, I can buy MasterCard and Visa. I just think that it's just one of these two companies where I don't think they, it might be wise to try and choose one over the other. I think that both of them are fantastic businesses and, you know, probably it's just, it's just okay to own both of them. We don't have to always to choose between, between like one or the other. But um, in terms of MasterCard, really, I really like, um, you know, if you, if you look at their like financial statement, you could see that it's quite a very, they're, they're investing very aggressively, uh, probably more than Visa, I'd say, in terms of uh, uh, investing back into the business. So as a growth-oriented investor, that's probably why I tilted toward MasterCard. But on the balance of scale, Probably in two, three months, you also see Visa, you know, <laughs> on that list, being added to that list again. Yeah, that makes sense. I've actually looked at both companies and you're exactly right. You can see MasterCards putting more money back into the business. Okay, so great. That's the payments. Super helpful. So let's move on to the next company, a company I know well, actually, the Trade Desk. So how did you find the company and what are your thoughts on it? <laughs> So the trade desk is a company that actually came through that I came to know through Twitter. And really I read um, a few articles about the company, but this is one of the companies which is weird because I never really did like a deep analysis of the company. So it's almost one of those companies where I bought it on, on hunch, based on hunch, so without, uh, without doing much analysis much analysis on it. But um, I mean, the way I really think about it is that I, 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 I always look for a company that is, you know, taking an advantage of an involving space, especially on the program, programmatic advertising space. And such companies, I believe that if, because right now, because of the way that intangible assets work, it's almost like a winner-take-all type of market dynamic, right, where, you know, the, the leader will probably you know, corner the whole market and they gain so much market share and makes it very, very hard for the other competitors to, you know, to come on board. So I really thought that uh, the trade desk had an edge in terms of coming out uh, and dominating that particular uh, sector of the market. And I think that in the recent news, they have struck a deal with Amazon, if I'm not mistaken, you know, so it really, it's almost like you can get the flywheel going and it might be very, very hard for other competitors to come in that space and, and challenge trade desk. But um, this, uh, Ryan, is an example of a company I bought on the hunch um, <laughs> without, without much, much deep analysis into it. I think you're being modest, <laughs> but let's go to the next one. So how about Brookfield Asset Management? What do you think about that one? The reason I so I, the reason I I have Brookfield Asset Management and also uh, Berkshire Hathaway was because I really think that these are the companies that will probably do well if we enter into a recession. Obviously, uh, Brookfield, I mean, within the infrastructure space, um, that space is very, you know, infrastructure business is really anchored on uh, long-term contracts, contractual agreements 
with very, very, um, um, like, like I call them, very strong counterparties. All right. So whether it's, it's, it's a toll road, whether it's a pipeline, whether it's a rail infrastructure, I think these are the types of assets that will do reasonably well in, 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 a, in, in a recession uh, period. Because you know, the cash flows are very predictable and the cash flows are based on long-term contractual agreement. And they also have got some inflation hedge built into the contract. So Brookfield is really a company that I like, you know, to, it's almost like a defensive posture in the portfolio. Um, the, same, the same thinking went also into Berkshire Hathaway. I really think that is one of the companies that's, that is really, really placed to take advantage of a recession. I mean, right now they have 122 billion of you know in cash on in cash on their balance sheet, and I really think that if we go into a recession, this this is an example of a company that can really take advantage of of, of that you know of that period. So these two companies, I almost I almost have them as a defensive posture, like in the like in the uh, like in the portfolio. That makes sense. So how do you think about structuring the portfolio in terms of defensive companies or say more of a speculative company, one that you might know, not know as well, like the trade desk. So how do you think about position sizing in those two groups? It's a very interesting question because um, I think initially when I came out of the block, I was a uh, full throttle growth investor. Um, and probably 90% of the companies that I had in the portfolio were all growth-oriented. But then, you know, you start to think about it a little bit more and you start to ask yourself, okay, even though I have no idea when a recession is coming or how deep or severe it will be, but in case it comes, you know, which companies do I believe that will stand good, you know, in that particular scenario, you know? And this is really how I thought about including Berkshire Hathaway, because just looking at how Warren Buffett is, is managing the company, it's almost like he's waiting for that, that like inevitable um, <laughs> event to happen, right? And Berkshire will be like almost like your land of last resort. So the company is really positioned to take care, to take advantage of that opportunity. And the same thing about Brookfield asset, manage, asset management is also because historically, I also used to work in the infrastructure, infrastructure financing space. And by the very nature of the business, it's quite resilient to, to like recessions. So, but overall, when I think about the portfolio, I try and make sure that, um, I try and make sure that not, like not one company is more than 10% of the portfolio. Um, but this is just because, you know, I, I try and manage risk that way and I try and spread my risk at, like a little bit around. So that's how I think about it. And also because of the way that I invest, I, I also invest on a monthly basis. So some positions, I build them over a couple of months. Um, so I can buy into a new position now and then next month I add, then the next month I add until I get to my 10% to my limit. Gotcha. So let's move on to the next one, IAC. So a lot of moving parts there, but just talk a little bit about that one. Yeah, I will group IAC and Constellation Software because the way I have them in my portfolio, I have these ones as the capital allocators. 
you know, that's how I think about these two companies. Um, and I really believe that I think the, um, the, the management for both companies have, sh have shown that they are quite skilled in allocating capital. And, you know, in, 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 in the case of Constellation Software, to also do a, like a small scale roll-up strategy. So actually, I have IAC Constellation Software and like our NV5 are global. It's companies that are pursuing a investment-led like growth strategy. Obviously, Constellation Software and NV5 is an acquisition-led strategy, and IAC is something different. But overall, I think that I have these companies as my capital allocators within the portfolio. So that's a really helpful framework to think of it as kind of defensive capital allocators and then maybe growth companies. But I'd want to drill down on capital allocators. So pretend you were talking to somebody that didn't know anything about investing. How would you teach them what a good capital allocator com type company looks like? So what are the things you actually look for? There are a couple of things. Um, but the way I think about it is that I actually read, I think you know, there's this, uh, there's this book, I think it's called Valuation by McKinsey, in which they make an argument that most companies that pursue, in, uh, especially in, in acquisition-driven growth, they tend to destroy shareholder value because they overpay for their target companies. So even if management is, is quite good at integrating the new companies, but because they overpay, they tend to destroy value. So when I think about acquisition-led growth companies, I think about companies that are doing roll-up strategies, but with sectors that have got like, like certain characteristics. For example, right, I like, uh, I, can take, I can take an example of like NV5 Global and Constellation Software. I like that the companies they target is they target to buy very small uh, companies you know, in which they don't compete with your normal private equity companies or your normal, you know, other big investors. So in case of NV5 Global, you can see that most of their acquisitions are less than $2 million. And those are the type of acquisitions where competition with uh, PE companies are relatively low. Therefore, the multiples that you pay for those uh, target companies are also quite low. And also, they also operate in a sector where you, you have a lot of, very, of these very small companies that when the owners want to retire, they almost don't have anyone else to sell to except you. So once you, you know, develop a reputation as an acquirer in that space, you almost like have like a huge pipeline of very, very small companies that you can acquire at you know, decent like, uh, valuation and then you tag them in. And then once you tag them in, and if you're operating like three or four verticals within, within your company, you can then use that opportunity to cross-sell you know, services you know, between, between your investee companies. So they can cross-sell like, like, um, like among each other. So for example, right, if you look at NV, NV5 Global, they operate you know, within the transport, within the energy, within the oil and gas verticals. And you know, once, they, once they make an acquisition, let's say it's a construction construction design consulting company, that company can, you know, also get some work from other investee companies that are within, you know, within the group. 
but those are very, very small uh, acquisitions that they make, and they tend to pay, you know, very attractive prices for, for those uh, companies. I think over the last 10 years, Constellation Software has also been in that space, within, within the vertical software market space. Um, I think if you look at, if you read Mark Leonard's uh, letters, he spoke about, you know, the type of companies that were buying and, you know, the prices that they were paying, two, three, four million dollars. And at that point in time, you know, they really, you could really, there were very, very few private equity companies that would be competing for such deals because they would be too small for them. But I do agree that now, once that's, that strategy has been successful, and you can see now a lot of capital going into, you know, into some of these uh, sectors. Definitely. So let's move on to one more trend. So I think this is the genetic information trend. So you have Illumina and Invitae. So just talk about that trend and those companies in particular. So the way I also thought about Illumina and Invitae is, was almost the same way I thought about the payments, the payments sector, right? I mean, if you look at um, DNA sequencing and genetic testing, it's also a sector where right now we are still in the early innings. And I think the report I read, it shows that probably less than 1% of the entire population in the world has ever been, uh, you know, has ever done uh, genetic testing. And the interesting part of, about this particular vector is that I think it's going to be one of the most revolutionary uh, type of, um, you know, invention within the healthcare space. Because right now, I'm, the, the mortality rates, among, for example, among people with, uh, that are diagnosed with cancer is quite high. And the reason is that the current technology, by the time they diagnose, diagnose you with cancer, is already too late, right? So the cancer is already developed and treating it, it becomes very expensive. And also the mortality rates you know, are generally higher because it's way too late into the cycle. But what these companies are doing, Illumina and Invita, is that they are really driving innovation to be able to detect these, uh, you know, diseases way, way earlier, like, you know, way, way earlier, such that the cost of treating it is quite low. And also, you know, the mortality rates are quite, quite, quite low. So to me, the way I think about it, right, is that what is required for the adoption curve, you know, to really take off for these companies? And obviously, one, one of the big dragging uh, thing has been pricing, right? It, it has been gener just generally been too expensive to do uh, genetic testing over the last couple of years. But really the point is once we get to a hundred dollar mark in terms of the cost of doing genetics, then everybody can, can do genetic testing the same way that people do diabetes testing or HIV AIDS testing, because then it becomes more of a preventative approach and most people can really afford it. And once most people can afford it, also the insurance schemes and also um, the healthcare schemes can also start funding these um, this tests. So you can see that then the adoption curve just kicks off right there. So the way I really think about these two companies is, is it's almost the same way as payments in that there's a very, very large, very large population um, that would want to, you know, that, that can potentially be customers once we get the pricing and the cost down, down enough. 
And once that happens, it will be, doing genetic testing and DNA sequencing will become a lifestyle and everybody will be able to do that. And then these two companies are the ones that I believe that will be able to take advantage of those trends. Yeah, that's great. So let's move international and go to China. So I noticed the company Baozun. What are your thoughts on that one? Baozun is because I really missed out on, um, on Shopify. <laughs> <laughs> so I really missed out on Shopify. I was a little bit, I was way too late to the, to, to, uh, to the game on Shopify. But the way I think about Baozun is that I'm thinking about which companies are creating what you know, is commonly referred to as platforms that enable other companies to prosper, which is, which is almost different from the way you think about like a marketplace, right? So which companies really power other companies to, 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 to prosper? And, the real, and after I realized that I missed the bot on Shopify, when I came across Thousand, I really thought that they are pursuing something of a similar strategy in China. And what was even more exciting was that recently they actually pivoting their business towards more of the service-oriented offering to, to other brands that are looking to go into China. I mean, you have got a 1 billion plus, probably 1.5 billion plus market in China. And right now you could see that two things are happening. Number one is that the household income in China is probably going to keep trending higher. So more and more companies would want to tap into that market. And the way that Bowser is you know, uh, placing itself is that it wants, it wants to enable other companies to be able to effectively enter into that market and set up operations, start selling without huge upfront costs. So companies that aid other companies to be more agile I think that they've presented a very unique value proposition, you know, to, to, to investors. And if a company is operating in, in a market as huge as, as huge as China, then I think there's huge reinvestment opportunity and also huge um, opportunities for other brands that want to move into that market. Um, I mean, if you talk to companies that have tried to go into China, right now, most companies, they want to enter the market, but... You know, people are quite, um, you know, they're quite, they're, most companies are quite concerned of the capex that you have to spend upfront. So if you've got a solution that enables you to go into a market without spending so much capex, I think it's a, it's a very, very a valuable proposition that most companies would, 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 um, would find it so attractive. So that's really how I think about Bowser and that's how I think about, you know, but generally about companies that, are aiding other companies to become more agile and you know, helping them to break into new markets. I think recently we are seeing the same with Shopify uh, with their fulfillment solution. It's really to help their customers expand into you know, other international markets without having them to set up you know, the operations or without having them to spend the capex to like, set up the operations upfront. Definitely. So you mentioned missing the boat on Shopify. So that implies that there's sort of an upper limit to valuation that when you're looking at a company, something's too expensive. So just talk a little bit about your valuation framework. And if I'm kind of cluing in on something there. 
Yeah, definitely. Um, so when I think about valuation, really, initially, I also used to do a lot of, um, you know, DCF modeling. Um, but right now, I've, I'm almost, I'm all, I, I almost think about valuation as in testing which assumptions are baked into a, into a company's share price, right? And then I have to ask myself that, number one, are these assumptions reasonable or how probable are they, you know, are, are these assumptions? And number two, if I get in now at this, at this price point, you know, and let's say I'm aiming for a 10% annual return, what does it mean on the underlying assumptions, be it growth, be it um, profit margins, be it ROIC? What, what does it mean now? Or what should I believe should happen for, for me to be able to generate this particular type of return? So when you look at some, some of the fantastic companies that are out there, like Shopify, they are very, very good companies. But right now, the assumptions that are embedded in those companies I think they are way over the top. So you can think of Shopify, you can think of Zoom, you know, you can think of uh, uh, CrowdStrike. It's just, it's just that the assumptions that are baked in there are just so much that I just don't think that this is the right entry point, you know, for me into those particular brands, into those particular companies at this point in time. Yeah, that's super helpful and very practical. Um, so thanks for that. So moving on to a couple of the last ones, you have Texas Instruments in there. And I know Texas Instruments is kind of a nuanced company, but when I think of it, I think of calculators I had in high school. So kind of changed my mind on that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's that's quite correct. Every time, every time someone, I talk to someone about Texas Instruments, the first thing they'll be like, is that the company that made calculators in high school? Said, um, <laughs> Well, the, the, I think the driving um, thinking around Texas Instrument was this movement into uh, the auto, like autonomous car driving space. And when I, when I was thinking about it, I, it was almost the same way when I was thinking about Bowser and to say, which companies, you know, can help other companies, you know, uh, achieve their particular objectives. And the way I think about uh, Texas Instrument is that if you look at the analog chips that are used, or that at least I think will be in very high demand when you think of um, the autonomous, autonomous driving, Texas Instrument is better placed than any other common I can think of to take advantage of that trend. So that's the first thing. And I also understand that to get it right in terms of developing uh, the analog chip is very expensive and it takes a lot of time, right? And once you get it right, it just becomes, you almost like corner, 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 corner the, in the entire market, right? So Texas Instrument, I really think that's the company that's going to take advantage of that trend um, on the autonomous driving side. And I see a lot of uh, venture capital funding going into that space. And I think probably over the next 10, 20 years, when really autonomous driving takes, uh, takes off, to then, I mean, the analog chips that will be used in those vehicles, I think Texas Instrument is better placed than any other company to take advantage of those. 
So talk about your kind of the practical steps you took in order to come to that conviction, because when I look at that space, it seems like everybody's saying a different thing. I mean, you have NVIDIA's chips and then Tesla is deciding to do it in-house and you have just a bunch of other chip makers. So kind of talk about what you read and the steps you took in order to get that conviction on Texas Instruments. Sure. It's a little bit of, you know, if you've got an evolving or, or an emerging market, I think you can see that there'll be a lot of players trying different, different things. I think to your point, you, talk about, you spoke about Tesla trying to do it in-house. Whether they'll be, do, they'll be able to do it in-house in the long term, I don't know. I'm not quite convinced. Uh, you can, there are also other companies that are also, you know, trying to, you know, t- um, you know, like carve out a market in that, particular, in that particular space. But the way I understand it, right, is that um, the cost, you know, and, and also, you know, the technology that you require to develop analog chips, it's, it's a very long, it's almost like a long, like R&D process or, you know, period, a process that you have to, you have to undergo in order to, to develop the chips. And then after that, then the chips have got a very long um, like lifespan. And companies like Texas Instrument, if you look at, I think over the last 10 or five years, the management has come if it is almost like sort of another part of the business and they're really, really concentrating on this particular uh, sector of the market. So to me, I prefer a company that is focused uh, and that has, you know, that 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 because it, it it makes sense to deploy your resources, uh, you know, to, to one particular focus, other than other than trying to be you know the jack of all trades. So, I really think that companies like Tesla, if management is to allocate capital, who they you know in a world of constrained capital, right now capital is cheap, so probably there's so much money floating around, but that will not be like this for a very long time. So when it comes to a point where capital is constrained and management is thinking about allocating capital in Tesla, where, where would they allocate capital? Would they allocate capital to develop analog chips or would they allocate capital to, you know, uh, to, to manufacture the, uh, the cars? So you have to think about those dynamics. I think right now um, people are pursuing so many opportunities just because capital is available and is cheap, but I don't think it's sustainable in the long run. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense, kind of that framework of focus. So moving on to the last one, I believe it is Stitch Fix. Talk about that one. Stitch Fix, um, <laughs> it's, it's almost like a so, you know, a so point <laughs> in my portfolio. Um, I, um, I really, the product that they sale really resonates with me because I've got a very bad sense in styling myself. So I end, every time I end up going to, you know, every time I try and go and buy some pieces of clothes, you know, you end up spending two hours and the choices make I end up horrible. Or number two is sometimes you just don't find the right size or sometimes it's the right size, but, you know, the length is a little bit too big. So, you know, so they are offering a solution that really resonates with me as a customer, and it's something that I've always had at the back of my mind. That you know, why is it that if you walk into a shop, you almost 
never find the piece of clothes that you want, right? Whether it's the fit or size, whether it's the color, whether it's the texture, you never find the right thing that you want. That you want. So when I first, um, obviously, um, came th- uh, across um, uh, Stitch Fix, the solution really resonated with me. And I have got a friend of mine that I also know from the US that tried Stitch Fix. And I think he has been using it for probably four or five years now. No, because it solves the problem around styling yourself, you know, which probably myself and, and most other people can, you know, can, it does resonate with us. So that's really what, what got me interested into their, like, uh, what got me interested with their business model. But then I also had concerns around how scalable Stitch Fix is and whether it's just a once-off, you know, thing, and then everybody else, you know, goes into that space. So that has been one of uh, the concerns that I had with Stitch Fix. So my approach there was actually just to open up a small position in Stitch Fix. I think right now it's less than it's less than one percent of my portfolio, but really it's just to you know see how this business model evolve, and if I'm starting to get just if if, I, if my questions question marks around how scalable is the business and to what extent, or is it a sticky business proposition? If I'm convinced, I can add more. If I'm not convinced, then I can simply, you know, sell down the remaining position. But it's almost like a tracker position that I've, I've opened up. But um, right now, it's a company that I follow quite closely. So I'll be looking at the numbers, especially in terms of customer growth and also in terms of customer retention to see how sticky is the business model going forward. Yeah, that's great. So we want to be respectful of your time. And I just want to say thank you for being transparent and open. But we just have one closing question for you. So what are some of the daily habits, the things you do every day that have contributed to your success? I think right now probably I'll pick two things. The first thing is, I'm actually quite grateful for Twitter in that it enables me to open up pathways that might not have been possible uh, before, you know, you know, and meeting a lot of people that oh, I've never met them in person, but you can, you can get to follow people that, you know, uh, that, that post content, which resonates that you can learn from. And also that you can, you know, you can also uh, contribute uh, like yourself. So I think the first thing is every single morning when I wake up um, here in Australia, the U.S. market is, is about to close. And, you know, I just go through my Twitter feed and I look at, you know, all the wonderful posts and links that people share and how other people think about their portfolios. So it's really a very, very, very good source of, almost like you get education for free on Twitter. Probably it's, it's unbelievable how much content you can get out there and, how, and the quality of the content is quite good depending on who you follow. And it's, 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 it's content that you would have paid probably 100,000 US dollars just to you know your, your, your hands on that content. So Twitter is, the, is, is, is one thing. And then the second thing really is to read... Um, like investor letters for, from some of the, you know, uh, key people that I follow or some of the key companies that I'm invested into. 
you know, because some of them, uh, they are really quite good in terms of, they give you how, how the management is thinking about, you know, about, uh, about the company, about, about uh, uh, the global commerce, you know, how management is thinking about how the industries are evolving in some of the key emerging trends, you know, even in, in other industries. So it gives you very, very good insights into, you know, into how, you know, the world is emerging. I think for us, especially for me in particular, the one downside is that we are not in a position to attend, you know, analyst briefings for companies. So we're a little bit far away from the action. So we're quite grateful, you know, for platforms like Twitter, because then we can learn and we can read, you know, such good quality content that's being produced by other people out there. Totally. So I think that's a great way to end it. Really appreciate your time, Trevor. Wish you the best. Thanks, Ryan. Thanks for having me. Thanks again for listening. You can find more information at www.investingcity.org where you can sign up and subscribe for our email newsletter that goes out every Tuesday and Friday. And you can also follow us on basically every social media platform on the face of the earth. And if you're feeling extra generous, please leave us an iTunes review as it really helps us out. And with that, have a fantastic day.